Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com. Okay, here we go. I hope she likes these flowers. Why do girls like flowers, anyway? Does that have something to do with the birds and the bees? If she likes the flowers, does she want to make out with me? I wonder if she'll want to do more than make out with me. I shouldn't think like that. What if she does? It's okay if you're in love, right? But we're not not in love. If we get married later, does it make it okay? What if she gets pregnant? Would I have to marry her? Maybe I should have stopped at the drugstore earlier. Is birth control a sin? Should I even be asking this question? God is listening to me right is now. Is it a sin if you think something? Is it a sin? Question, God. Don't be afraid to ask the tough questions. FAQ is our special August series where Pastor Tim will be focusing on hot topics and hard questions. Submit your questions online at liquidchurch.com slash FAQ. All right, well, I want to welcome you to our new series, FAQ, especially if you're at New Brunswick campus in Morristown. Glad you guys are here. We are tackling some of the most frequently asked questions uh, here at Liquid and within the larger Christian community. Uh, we've had a few hundred uh, questions pouring over the past few weeks, and surprisingly, uh, a lot of them are hot-button issues. Uh, what does the Bible say about gay marriage? Uh, is speaking in tongues biblical? If God created everything and loves everyone, how does he feel about Buddhists, atheists, Muslims, etc.? Is it wrong for an engaged couple to live together but not have sex? In my mind, there are really two ways to dive into these kind of issues. I was reminded of it when I was at the beach this summer. Uh, Colleen and I were watching this couple make their way into the the ice-cold Atlantic Ocean. And the woman, of course, was going in like this, an inch at a time. And she stuck her toe and her eyes got wide. And she inched in kind of up to her knees. And the guy comes ripping down the beach. Cowabunga! You know, he rips off his shirt and and dives in. Of course, takes her under two. And uh, guess which approach we're taking? Uh, I'm not much for kind of wading in. I, I think there's something about hitting these head on. And tonight, I want to begin by tackling the gay debate. Uh, you know, same-sex attraction, gay marriage, homosexuality. Are we talking nature? Is it nurture? This was a recurring theme in the questions that were submitted. Um, there are a host of issues surrounding this hot button, and, but I, I think I chose one question that I think gets at the heart of it. This person wrote, Someone in my family recently came out And I know the Bible says being gay is wrong, right? That is what it says, yeah? As a Christian, how should I respond? And and maybe you're familiar kind of with the tension of this question, right? First off, you can see it's very personal. I mean, every one of us knows somebody who is affected by this issue in a personal way. Um, For some of us, it's it's family. We know a brother or a sister or son or daughter, uh, perhaps a relative or a close friend who is gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, GLBT, that's kind of the acronym for the gay community. And while mainstream culture often kind of celebrates when someone comes out, most evangelical Christians feel a lot more angst, a little tension. Because on the one hand, they say they they believe that the the Bible says being gay is wrong. Though notice the second guessing here. Is, Is that what it says, actually? I don't know. Another person said, well, wait a minute, I know. I heard Jesus never mentioned anything about homosexuality in his teaching. And he wrote, is it possible it's not as big a deal as we make it out to be? Great question. The tension is for Christians who, on the one hand, have this high view of Scripture. They want to be faithful like to God's written word. But on the other hand, they want to be loving at the same time. And it's like when you disagree with someone's lifestyle, how how is that being loving? particularly for gay folks. And I know there are many of you with us today or watching online. Um, you, may, you might say, yeah, how can you say you love me 
when you fundamentally take issue with who I am as a person. If that's love, no thanks. <laughs> this is a highly charged emotional issue for many of us because it's not abstract. It's personal. There are faces behind these issues, and they're not just labels. And today I want to address this uh, personally. I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story and how I've seen my own views kind of change on this as I've gotten closer to gay friends in my life. And then second, we're going to look at it scripturally. What exactly does the Bible say about being gay? Because we have a high view of scripture at Liquid. We actually believe this is God's you know, inspired word. It's, it's an errant, but we'll, we're going to discuss. Then what's his original design for sexual relationships? And then what does the Bible affirm? And then what's outside of that? Nature versus nurture. Does it matter if someone is, is born gay? Do they need to change uh, in order to follow Christ? Because I think a lot of gay people assume that, and if you're a Christian, you may say, oh yeah, they need to change it. And then finally, how should I respond? I mean, if you are someone who takes both the Bible and Christ's command to love seriously, what should your attitude be? How, how can you love authentically? Is it actual, actually possible, can you imagine, to accept and embrace people even if you disagreed with them biblically? And just to up the ante in this room right now, if the temperature isn't enough to make this live, listen to this FAQ submitted by someone who's new to our church. He wrote, My partner and I were joined together in a civil union. We are gay men who carry God in our life every day. I've searched for a church service that I truly enjoy and would like to be part of the Liquid community. My question is, does Liquid Church accept me into their community as a gay man? Or am I looked down on because of my sexual preference? Isn't God the only one who should judge others? If I keep God in my heart and treat others as I would like them to treat me, who but God is so without sin that he should cast the first stone at me? Whoa! How's up for upping the ante a little bit, making it live? There are people in this room right now who are taking a huge risk even being here today. They may be sitting next to you in your row and even wondering, am I welcome here or am I about to be bashed? So let me answer that real clearly, just on behalf of Liquid Church. Yes, you are welcome here. We are thrilled that you are here, and I just want to thank you for taking that risk. In fact, in some ways, you're more than welcome, because at Liquid, we invite everybody to come as they are. We accept you, no strings attached, just as God, through Jesus, embraced us. But our, our hope is to be the kind of church where it's actually a safe place, where you can explore the claims of Christ, not man-made religion, but a relationship with Christ. And then together, what we do is we wrestle through the implications of like Christ's lordship over all areas of our life, including our sexuality. Um, in our church, you need to know this, we have uh, single, we have divorced, we have remarried, we have straight, we have gay, we have bi, we have people who don't even know what they are, okay? And together, in the, in the light of, of who God is, we probably have more in common with our sexual brokenness than we do with having it all together, Okay? Personally speaking, uh, I should just come out and tell you, I am a flaming heterosexual. Uh, by, by nature, by, I tell you this up front, by nature I'm attracted to other women. But I'm also first committed to Christ and then to my wife, Colleen. What that means is I'm wrestling with the demands that Jesus makes on my sexuality. Because I open the scriptures and Jesus says, I tell you, if even a man looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery in his heart. And I'm like, ah, as a heterosexual man, I am not naturally oriented towards monogamy. Jesus makes my natural orientation difficult. More about that later. Suffice to say, you are in good company, and I want to begin a conversation for all of us that talks about the difference between acceptance and agreement. Because the two aren't the same. And the question is, 
could God's love be big enough, expansive enough, that it's possible to disagree with people who hold a different perspective and yet still honor, respect, and, and embrace, not further reject or hurt them? I'll be honest, that's not been the track record historically of the Christian church and the gay community over the years. The two sides have been polarized and a lot of talking at one another, not a lot of meaningful connection between. And the main reason is this. Both camps like to set up a straw man. You know what a straw man is in an argument? Who knows? Let me get my little scarecrow in there. I haven't named him. We can do that at some point. Conservative churches typically condemn homosexuality and they invest a lot of energy kind of fighting against any like perceived gay agenda. So maybe you've gotten emails or they organize rallies. They sign petitions and, and, they, and they set up a straw man saying, we need to fight gay marriage because it'll be the end of the traditional family as we know it. As if that's the goal of gay people. It's taking on family. So conservatives spotlight certain verses, would point out our culture's moral decay, and they would say, it's the fault of the gay community, and we need to fight back. And that's where you get gay bashing, where the Bible is used as a weapon to knock your opponent right over. You set up this stereotype and exaggerate their position with a hollow argument so it's easier just to knock them down. We're not going to do that in FAQ. No straw men allowed. On the other hand, you have liberal churches who kind of react to that loveless approach by playing fast and loose with the Bible. They would, they would say, well, your interpretations are dated. You need to change as society changes. And basically, they would welcome gays, lesbians, bisexual, transgender with no mention of any need to submit their sexuality to the Lordship of Christ. So they set up a, a different straw man. They say, you know what the problem is? It's you conservative Christians. It's the religious right. They're all homophobes. All of you. You're judgmental, Bible-banging bigots hopelessly stuck in the first century. That's the problem, conservative Christians. If you could just understand the science that God made us this way and accept gay marriage as an equal right, then things would be okay. So down with Bible bigots and homophobes. We're here, we're queer, get used to it. My scarecrow's head just rolled off. We'll fix that in a minute. The problem is... You see the problem. Both sides set up these straw men and talk over one another as if winning the argument or strong-arming the other into submission is going to change anyone's mind. It won't, will it? As if like saying, you know what, you're right. That point you made about pederasty in first century Greek, that changed everything for me. It's not going to change your mind or your heart, mainly because it's not the way of Jesus. That is the way of love. See, when Christians in the gay community submit to Christ, rather than using the Bible to just prop up their agenda, everything changes. You can actually have a conversation. That's what we want to have. A dialogue that takes place that can both honor Christ and each other in a loving, respectful way. So we're not going to allow straw men in this FAQ series. Instead, we're choosing the third way of Christ making this personal. It's about love, not politics. There are real people. There are brothers and sisters who've been hurt and rejected and are sitting in this room and they're wondering if you will accept them. And then we're going to look at it scripturally. We're going to let the Bible speak for itself. Jesus actually has a high view of scripture. He never manipulated or, or dismissed as dated. He affirmed it as God's eternal truth. And then attitudinally, whatever camp you're in, how can each of us allow Christ to change us, our attitude, towards the other? One more FAQ just to show you how personal this is. They wrote, I recently learned that my brother is gay. It was a complete shock to me and I'm having a really hard time with it. He struggled and prayed about this. Why would God make him this way if that's not what God wants for his people? I love my brother dearly. 
but I'm just having a really hard time accepting this. I don't see him changing. So this is a reality that I'm going to have to learn to accept if I want to have a good relationship with him. And I do. Do you hear the heart behind that? Do you hear it? The desire for understanding, for dialogue. My, my hope is that like Liquid could be a third-way church, a, a place where it's actually possible to dialogue with others and yet respect, honor, love, and even embrace those we disagree with in the love of Christ. Is it possible to hold fast to truth and yet be known by this fierce love for the others, especially those who are marginalized, hurt, been rejected or on the fringe? That's my hope. And that's quite an introduction. <laughs> and I need to say I'm going to inevitably leave something out and disappoint you today. Uh, some of you are going to leave today saying, oh, I can't believe he didn't say this, or I didn't like the way he said that. Very few people, that wasn't, by the way, a gay person, that was my mom. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, okay, there we go. Very, very few people come to this table without preconceived notions, but I want to invite you right now, just check those at the door a minute, just let God's Spirit speak to you. In fact, let me invite him to do that right now. Let's pray together, okay? Uh, Jesus, we just invite you in here, your spirit of truth, honesty, and humility, God. And all we think right now and say and talk about together, would you be glorified, God? We want to see you, not our agenda. Right now, I ask a spirit of humility to blanket this room at all of our campuses. We want to love each other well, so teach us by your Holy Spirit and lead us into your truth. Amen? Amen. All right, you can take out your Bible, and would you open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11. This is the flashpoint of all of this issue. I'm going to get my straw man over here in his head. Nick, maybe you can get his head back on there. I'll put that on there for me, would you? Um, the interesting thing is, I'm going to break this FAQ into two parts, by the way. Because of the volume of questions on this issue, almost over 10% of the questions, and this week we're going to set the foundation for what the Bible actually says and what's involved in sexual orientation. And then next week we're going to talk about our response as Christ followers, because that's the heart of the issue. And I want to lay a scriptural foundation here so we have some solid footing to push off of. Uh, if you keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter of Genesis gives us God's original design for human relationships. It says in verse 27, you just open up the Bible, it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. He's alive, thank you. So we begin with very, very good news for everyone, straight or gay. The Bible says every man and woman is a glorious image bearer of the living God. It doesn't matter. Hetero, homo, don't know. You have dignity, you have value, you have worth as a child of God because you've been created in his image. And we can just stop right there. Because that, that news alone means every individual has infinite value and dignity. Although God himself is neither male nor female, he creates two genders because together they best reflect the fullness of his image. Uh, we're giving out notes uh, today. If you're taking notes, male and female together best reflect the fullness of God's image. On the one hand, you have the masculine kind of strength and power of God tempered by the feminine side, his loving, nurturing affection and tenderness. And though God is neither male nor female, we are. And together, each gender reflects this kind of fullness of his character. Now here, you guys know this. Genders obviously are complementary. They're designed to fit together. Biologically, we know that, right? Their physical union brings forth life. But we also know it's not all about plumbing, is it? There, there's a divine imprint on the human soul or psyche that's complementary as well. That's why you'll see some gay couples, some, 
might assume gender roles. You know, one might be more masculine, take the lead in the relationship. Maybe one is more effeminate, and that's, that's a generalization. But it's more than biology. Somewhere underneath is this strange attractor that says, I need, I need another to complete me in a spiritual way. That's the image of God in us. We were made for God, and we were made for each other. Now, how is that best expressed sexually? Marriage, Genesis says, is humanity's God's given arena for sexual expression. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, they will become one flesh. We've covered that verse plenty of times. But then it says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So this is the first wedding night, the first marriage, the first family. It's this beautiful picture of intimacy, a man, his wife, naked, unashamed before God. So lost in our culture wars is more great news. Not only are you made in God's image, sex is awesome. Sex is a gift. It is God's idea. And having sexual impulses and attractions are part of the way he's made human beings. Sexual desires, I don't know what you were taught growing up, they're not dirty, they're not evil, they are actually planted in us by God. In fact, they're a reflection of the love that he has for us. That idea of one flesh, right? That God takes a, a man and a woman and through the gift of, of intercourse, he, he weaves their, their lives, their souls in a way that they're knit together for eternity. That's, it's beautiful, right? I mean, there's no shame, there's no guilt. This is the wedding present God gives his first couple. Now, that traditional view of heterosexual marriage is affirmed by Jesus himself in the New Testament. Matthew 19, Jesus says, Haven't you read? At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave mom and dad, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Jesus said, so they are no longer two, but what? But one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. You always hear that at weddings. You always wonder, like, where'd that come from? This is Jesus. <laughs> so Jesus affirms heterosexual marriage as a divine institution. And he's basically like, who's man to undo that? Now, here's the deal. Jesus never contradicts the teaching of the Old Testament. He always upholds it, but here's the deal. He takes it a step further. He lives it out himself. The New Testament calls Jesus the bridegroom. That is a masculine image. Who lays down his life out of love for the bride of Christ, female image, the church. So get this. God, chose, he, God comes to earth as a man, and he takes one woman, the church, for his bride. We're united in him. That's salvation. And then when we submit our life to Christ, we receive what? His love, his forgiveness. He actually enters our heart. He actually lives inside of us forever to become one. And I get it. If you're gay, you may be like, well, I like Jesus. I just can't stand his wife. Okay? The church is my problem. It, I get it. You get, but you get the point. The consistent message of Scripture from Old Testament to New is that we reflect God's relational ideal, which the Bible makes plain. One man plus one woman for one lifetime is what God calls very good in verse 31 of Genesis 1. Very good. That's the basics. Got it? We're all caught up. The problem happens in Genesis 3 when sin enters the picture. Sin is simply, it is our desire to have life apart from God, basically. See, I want to do this my own way. And when sin enters the picture, it distorts our sexuality from God's plan. And this is where you're like, oh, here we go. This is where homosexuality gets singled out. Actually, the Bible says that anything that falls out of this ideal pattern in the garden, what, man and woman in marriage, is less than God's ideal. And that includes what you see in our core text here, 1 Corinthians 6. So we got a little background. Verse 9 reads this. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is where the collision, boom, happens. Because this is the kind of verse some Christians will cherry pick so they can set up that straw man and say, see, I'm going to single out the GLBT you know, community for special condemnation just like God does. But the truth is, this letter was written to a church that was so out of control sexually, Jerry Springer could have been the pastor. Okay, I'm serious. A little, a little history. This is written around 55 AD at the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry to the city of Corinth. It's a little bit like New York City, cosmopolitan trade center, the crossroads of the world. And Corinth was not some, you know, quaint little town with traditional values, just the opposite. Prostitution was rampant. People engaged in ritual sex when they went to church with temple prostitutes. They had, they had big attendance. That was part of their worship of the goddess Aphrodite. That's quite a Sunday, right? You know, the goddess Aphrodite. And, and, and marriages were in shambles, and Christians weren't sure how to react. In fact, many of them said, well, you know, when in Rome. And it, all, it led to all sorts of confusion and immorality. Some of it same-sex, much of it heterosexual. Notice the first group Paul singles out are the sexually immoral and adulterers, meaning those who took the one man, one woman for one life and just kind of threw it on the cultural trash heap. If you flip one page back to chapter 5, look at this, Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud in other words, some dude was having an affair with his mom. How'd you like to go to that church? Serious yeesh factor. And you know what the people were saying? The people were basically saying, well, you know, I guess that's his choice. They're adults, you know. It, whatever they do behind closed doors, it's their business. They're consenting. And Paul's like, no, 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 whoa, whoa, time. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not God's dream for your sexuality. Again, you don't have to be a, a Christian, you know, to get this. And, you know, a guy, a man and his wife, or his mom, his, it's not, co it may be on HBO, but it's not going to be in the V-I-B-L-E, okay? So Paul's like, I think we may have lost sight of God's design for sexuality. So let's go over this. Adulterers, those of you who have sex with other people's spouse, that's not faithfulness. God's faithful, you're supposed to be like him. Male prostitutes, those of you who engage in sex for money, that's not love, that's called exploitation. Uh, homosexual offenders, those who act out of same-sex attraction, all of these are less than God's design for one man, one woman, and one marriage for life. And if you're gay, this is where you go off the wall. And you get tempted right now, and some of you are feeling it, to set up a straw man of your own. See, I knew it. Listen to the language Lucas uses. We are less than. That is, I am less worthy of love, less valuable as a person, less worthy of respect and dignity than straight people. That's what Bible-banging bigots do. You set yourselves up as being better than those of us who just happen to naturally be attracted to the same sex. No, 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 not so fast. That's where this question of orientation comes into play. Because if you're gay, you may say, you know, it's fine to put limits on straight people, at least they have an outlet in marriage. But I was born this way. And to say it's a sin, to act on something that I was naturally wired to do, that's unfair. It's bigoted and it's backwards. So let's just take a moment here, and we're going to set aside our little straw man for a minute and talk about origins, or where the, the, the gay orientation comes from and what it means. I'll even pull a little science in for you. If you look in your notes, 
you'll see we've listed some contributing factors. Again, this is, this, is ex, this is not biblical. This is secular science research. Modern research really reveals that there isn't one singular cause, but several contributing factors. And among them are genetic predisposition. Uh, that is, secular science bears out that there isn't one you know, gay gene that once and for all biologically determines a person is born gay. Now, I understand there's a big search for that, and, and there's been some progress, but they have the, 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 the idea that a person has no say in how their sexuality expresses itself, they say that's actually one of the factors. So some people might be genetically predisposed towards the same sex, just as the majority of people are predisposed to the opposite. But it's one factor among many, not the determining one. And that's important, because you know what it says? Biology is not destiny. It's, as free creatures in God's image, we're all born with the freedom to make our own choice. Life is fundamentally about choice. You'd probably agree with that. For instance, in recent years, you may have heard about the discovery that some ethnicities or families are genetically predisposed to alcoholism. Okay? It runs in their family. There's something about their background or biochemistry that makes some people susceptible to booze. Even just one drink can set off a larger destructive pattern in life. But knowing that you have a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism doesn't automatically translate that you're consigned to live your life as a drunk, does it? Yeah? You, you can actually choose. Life is about choice, and that's empowering, actually. To be able to say, just because I was born with a certain tendency doesn't mean it has to define who I am. See, biology as destiny is a dark road, folks. It says, if I'm born this way, I can't change. It's who I am at my core. That's the trump card Gay folks often play when backed into a corner. I know I've had conversations, and I get it. I get it. You feel defensive, and it's their identity. But to be a Christian is not to be straight. It's to believe that Jesus is our Lord, not our biology, not our natural instincts or our past. We're more than animals. Remember Genesis. We're spiritual creatures. We're made in God's image with this freedom of choice he gifts us with. As a heterosexual, I could argue to you that I was born with natural instincts to have sex with more than one woman. Can I just acknowledge that? Uh, many of my friends are that way too. But it is another step to conclude, and therefore I should have the right to live that way. I, I don't go down that road. And it's not because I'm better than anybody, but because I'm a Christ follower, not a Tim follower. That, that's my identity as a Christian. I've submitted my life first to God, and now I'm in covenant with one woman, Colleen, who I've also submitted my life to. Not every instinct Tim has should be indulged, whether I was born with them or not. Make sense? You tracking? What I like about this is that it says no one is a complete victim of any one particular thing that overtakes them, whether it's a biological or emotional impulse. We can affirm that there are things in biology that predispose us in one direction or the other, but not to the extent that we don't have choice in the matter. Life's about choice, and in Christ, we're empowered whether or not to act on or decline that impulse. So genetic predisposition can be one contributing factor, but it's not the only one. A second one is destructive family dynamics. And uh, some of you may say, well, wasn't that theory tossed out in the 50s? Actually, it won't die because so many secular researchers continue to find such a high correlation that they can't rule it out. And the basic idea here is, is pretty simple. It's that our family life, particularly like the parental patterns that shape us in early childhood, are formational in our sexuality. In other words, it's, it's not just nature, it's nurture as well. So let's say a boy has a father who is absent or distant or hostile He's like emotionally kind of rejecting of him. And the mother is domineering or smothering. That can lead to a boy who identifies most closely with mom. He, he comes to see the feminine role as his model or ideal, and he wants to be more like mom than dad, 
who's emotionally MIA or abusive. That just makes good psychological, sociological sense. So when he gets older, those effeminate tendencies blossom, as well as the desire to be embraced and loved and accepted by another man, a deep longing he has never had filled. That's a contributing factor for both sexes. I was talking with a young woman at Liquid who um, lived in college a lesbian lifestyle. And uh, as she described her journey, she talked about how she grew up without a father. He actually was an addict. He kind of drifted in and out of her life. And she didn't have a lot of experiences with boys in high school. But in college, she was introduced uh, by, to lesbianism by some girls in her dorm who paid attention to her beauty. One very kind of butch girl kind of actively courted her, took her out for dinner and stuff, basically dates, buying things for her, and actually making sure she felt taken care of. And you know what? She said, I really enjoyed it. Because <laughs> I finally had a protector, a caretaker that I always wanted. And I said, well... It doesn't sound like you were physically attracted to your girlfriend. She said, no, not, 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 not really. It was primarily emotional. She makes me feel special and beautiful and protected. It had little to do with sexual chemistry. It might as well, she said, it might as well have been with a guy, but it just happened to be a woman who filled that void first. Again, we all have our stories, right? Our hurts, our woundings. And destructive family dynamics can be a contributing factor. By the way, if you're a parent of a gay child, this is not like now you've got to beat yourself up because your child is not damaged goods. You understand that? He or she is valuable, is beautiful, is a child of God. What we're seeking is some possible understandings here. The last one I'll mention real quick is formative sexual experiences. And this is huge. Um, in research, this comes up again and again. Basically, the idea here is that during the pubescent area, that kind of like that window of a, per, you know, a formative window of a person's sexuality, a young man or a young girl may have a powerful erotic encounter with somebody of the same gender, and it can leave this imprint that really affects them in profound ways in their adult life. Um, first of all, we kind of live in a, a culture that defines heterosexual uh, pretty narrowly by what it's not, right? Like, I mean, if I asked you, like, how do you know you're straight? You, you would probably say, well, I'm never attracted... <laughs> or tempted by some dude, or another girl, you know, by the opposite sex, what I'm not. If that's what you're taught as a kid, it can set you up during those years when you're first exploring your sexuality. And I want you to think about this. I mean, think about teen sexuality. It don't take much, do it. At that stage of life, you can be turned on by a tree stump, okay? Or, or by a scarecrow, right? You can be like, hey. And let's, and let's say during that, that age of, you know, you know, in 8 through 15, you have a sexual exposure with someone of the same gender, which is not uncommon, okay? And you say, my goodness, that wasn't completely awful. It was actually kind of pleasurable. And if you're taught, well, if I'm a heterosexual, I should find that revolting and disgusting, and I'll hate it, but I didn't. Maybe, therefore, I'm gay. Or at least maybe I should investigate that. The truth is, formative sexual experiences, when we're young, and our response to them can be decisive. I'll get real personal here. When I was uh, 10 or 11, I spent the summer hanging out with a couple of other neighborhood uh, buddies of mine. We'd all ride our BMX bikes. I had a red mongoose. Anyone remember the mongoose? Thank you, mongoose. Okay. Over the course of that summer, we were riding in the woods by my house when we came upon somebody's stash of porno mags, okay? And we'd never seen that. We, we you know, knew it wasn't right, but we were 10 and we looked. And surprise, this is our earmuffs moment, okay? If you got kids, this is your earmuffs moment. All three boys, 10 years old, got erections. Is this, is this shocking to everybody at this moment? Well, we're standing there looking at these magazines, and one of the boys says, well, you know, show me yours, I'll show you mine, right? Which, again, is fairly instinctive. So here's this erotic moment shared by three members of the same sex, and I would like to tell you it was awful. 
help me, Jesus, help me here. As a 10-year-old boy, I was like, this, this is not awful. Um, and we went back to the woods several times that summer to investigate our secret stash we found. Now, I understand right now some of us are very uncomfortable. You're squirming in your seats. Some parents want to keep their heads in their sand when it comes to their, you know, their kids' sexuality as if, like, you know, we're asexual until we get married and the switch just kind of flips. Oh, no. Fortunately, I had the kind of open relationship with my folks where I eventually told them what happened. And here's the key. They didn't guilt or shame me, but actually walked me through it. Now, had I only received silence from them, or judgment, you what? Or a narrow cultural filter to view it through, I might have concluded, I know guys aren't supposed to be turned on in the presence of other guys, but I was. What are these strange feelings? Maybe, maybe I'm gay. Parents, this is so important, so important. Formative sexual experiences are a contributing factor to your child's sexual development. It is not a birds and beads, one and done talk. You need to have open channels of dialogue with them. Sometimes their formative experiences will be innocent and sometimes tragic. I received this email from a man uh, named Andy with the subject line, Gay in Boston, a new follower. Hey, Pastor Tim, this email's been a long time in the making, but to be frank, I have no idea how to begin it. I don't know if I'm hoping for some piece of salvation. Maybe I'm hoping for a spiritual connection. My name's Andy. I'm a 32-year-old gay guy from Boston, Massachusetts. I've been a fan of Liquid for a year or so, ever since your sermon about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. I grew up in a very non-religious family. My mom and dad came from families so torn by religion. Lutheran meets Southern Baptist meets Catholic meets Presbyterian. They vowed never to force their kids into anything religious. Well, I left home at 18. It was involved in a relationship shortly thereafter that, well, wouldn't be sanctioned by any religion. He was, in fact, a Catholic priest and twice my age. Long story short, that relationship led me down a dark road, but in the end opened me up to possibilities. I haven't been able to embrace Christianity totally. It's a language thing I keep telling myself. I like grace and redemption, but the language bothers me. Your recent series has moved me to tears every week. I can't stress enough to tears. Just yesterday, I dropped to my knees and prayed for one of the first times in my life. And it felt wonderful, but I'm so confused I can't make heads or tails of it. Was I really praying or just pretending in the heat of the moment? The bottom line is I'm so grateful for liquid and hopefully someday I will perhaps find Jesus in my heart and fully acknowledge him. Sincerely yours, Andy. I hope to visit your congregation. Do you hear Andy's heart here? The spiritual longing in this, in this gay man and the desire to connect with God but not sure if any church would allow him to do that and at the heart of his story is this abusive experience that impacted him deeply. A Catholic priest twice my age led me down this dark road and I found it difficult to embrace Christianity. Really? I can't imagine why. Who here has an ounce of condemnation for Andy's struggle? Folks, if you can't find the place of compassion in this, your heart's made of stone. The point is not to condemn people for their biology, 
their past, the choices they've made, or the things that have happened to them. The point of the entire Bible shouting at us is that in Christ, change is possible for everyone. Look back at this list in 1 Corinthians. It says, look at the list. Are you somewhere on this? The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, the greedy, anyone? Drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. Is anybody left out of this list? Now let's read verse 11 together. And that, Paul says, is what some of you, what's the word? Were. Notice the past tense. Here's the hope, says Paul. Once these behaviors defined you, but what happened? But you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Being washed is a reference to, to baptism. We're washed clean of all our sin by the blood of Christ. All the things that we've done, as well as the things that have been done to us. Through Christ we're justified, we're made right with God, and we undergo the spiritual rebirth. And, and, and this idea of being born again, the whole idea here, folks, is that now we don't just have natural desires, but the Spirit of God Himself lives inside of us, giving us supernatural power to live above and beyond how we're naturally predisposed. 2 Corinthians puts it this way, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? A new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Change is possible, says Paul, for both straight and gay. He's not calling you out to shame you or condemn you about your past, but he's like trying to envision for who in Christ you can become. That's what some of you were. Look at this list. Some of you were predisposed to sleep with other women. Some of you with other men. Some of you with your mom. Hello. That's who you were, defined by sexual brokenness. But now with Christ in you by His Spirit, you don't have to be a prisoner or a victim of biology, bad parenting, or your past any longer. Whether you're hetero or homo, what's broken can be made new by Jesus. The past no longer counts. It's about potential. It's about who you can become in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new's coming. Now here's the deal. If you are part of the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender community, I don't know how you hear this because that word change is often used as a club. You may be sitting here to say, and say, you know what? I don't want to change. I'm completely fine with who I am. Or I knew it. I knew it. This is one of those conservative churches and now they're about to try to change me, right? This is regret. Paul is not talking narrowly about sexual orientation here. He's saying, think a bigger thought. Above anything else, your spiritual orientation needs to change. It's not about coming out, rather it's inviting Christ in. Listen to me carefully, this may be the aha moment for some of you. According to scripture, the opposite of homosexual is not heterosexual, it's wholeness in Christ for both groups. So if you consider yourself a gay person, I'm not saying you first need to convert to a straight person and then you can follow God. No, 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 no. You need to first start by inviting Jesus into your life, your whole life like anybody else. That's saying, God, I love you, and Jesus, I'm trusting you with every part of me. I don't have this little box or area of my life called sexuality that's closed off. You do that, and from there, Jesus is quite capable of rearranging any furniture that needs doing, okay? Candidly, the Bible actually never mentions orientation. I need to tell you that. There isn't even a word for homosexual in the ancient languages. Only behaviors and attitudes are discussed. In other words, there's a difference between being and doing. And it's the practice, not the orientation, 
that the Bible says is sin. But it's not spotlighted as more sinful than a host of other stuff like lust, greed, or gossip. So if you're gay and you want to become a Christian, you want to follow God, do you, do you have to change your orientation? No, and yes. <laughs> no, not from homo to hetero. With God, anything is possible, but it's not the point. You need to change your orientation from sexual to spiritual. From my sexual desires to find me as who I am to, no, 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 first and foremost, I'm a spiritual being. I'm a child of God. And I'm open to whoever Christ wants to make me into. This is, this is, this is the third way, folks. We've got to elevate the conversation here. That's what I want to tell my friend Andy. That the invitation is to make Jesus, not your sexual rights or your tendencies, the focus of your life. Is it possible that a God who loved you enough came down to die to show you this love could be trusted with every part of your life, including your sexuality? In a very real way, guys, we all have broken aspects of our sexuality. And when you become a Christian, temptations don't just like magically go away. It's not, it's not like, cast it out, Jesus, you're a straight man. That's not going to happen. That happens in television. It's not the gospel and it's not the real world. The opposite of homosexual is not heterosexual. It's wholeness in Christ. Sometimes people come to Christ and temptations increase. You're going to hear from a member of our congregation next week. It's amazing. But the difference is that you no longer struggle with shame in isolation or feel hopeless because Christ has come inside of you and you realize... I am acceptable, embraced, I am whole in God's eyes. And then he sets you in a new family. A loving, accepting, broken family called the church with other broken people to journey together. So change is possible for everyone. I'm living proof of that. Again, as a uh, raging heterosexual who is not particularly predisposed to monogamy and living in a culture that doesn't encourage it, by the way, on a daily basis, that means I literally daily submit my sexuality to the Lordship of Christ. I, I say, God, I know you know what's best for my relationship. I know what the culture is telling me, but I'm depending on you for strength. I need to be faithful. And I stumble along the way, but I'm a new creation. I'm, I'm being sanctified. It's a process, folks. I was exposed to pornography at a young age, but I don't have to live as an addict. I have lustful thoughts coming at me every day from every direction, but I actually don't have to indulge them. You know why? In Christ, I'm a new creation. The, the, the old is going and the new is coming, more and more of Jesus in me. And that's a process. We're all at different points in the journey to bring our sexuality back to the garden. And God doesn't have some invisible hierarchy of sins. As if like adultery is number three on the list, followed by hetero lust at number two, Gay relationships, number one. There's no list, people. You need to hear that. Because sometimes the Christian church acts as if there is one. I put a quote kind of fun in your notes by Lynn Lavner. She says this, The Bible contains six admonishments to homosexuals and 362 admonishments to heterosexuals. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love heterosexuals. It's just that they need more supervision. <laughs> in other words, we all got issues. But as a Christian, you have something more. You have Christ, the living Son of God, in you. He's the hope of glory, wholeness, and healing. For those of you who are wrestling this out, I have the utmost respect for your courage. 
when you hear from somebody next week from our congregation, he's going to blow you out of the water because he still struggles with same-sex attractions, but more than that, he's attracted to Jesus and living out his life as a celibate man. That's unbelievable to me. I want you to know you're not alone. And our deepest desire is to come alongside you as a spiritual family so we can help each other each step of the way. That's why God births us in Christ and he sets us in a new family called the church. I heard one person describe the church as a colossal collection of moral mess-ups. And I'm like, I guess that's why I'm the lead pastor. (laughs) Anyway, that's a lot to start with. And uh, some of you have questions, so let me end by saying this. Historically, the Christian church at large has not responded to gay folks with understanding, compassion, or humility. Just the opposite. Hostility and hypocrisy has kind of been our legacy and calling card, as you're going to see next week. Um, There's so much hurt and rejection on both sides. And so next week, we're going to hit that head on um, just to give you a sense of where we are going. I'm going to begin next week with another confession that I'm not just a flaming straight guy, but for a good portion of my life, I was a raging homophobe. I was in love with straw men because that's the church I grew up in, man, and I had no mercy, no empathy, no desire to understand my gay brothers and sisters. But as I invited Christ in... And in my 20s, really got what lordship is about, which is just saying, hey, Jesus, change me. Change whatever you want about me. Guess what happened? Jesus moved into my heart, and he began surfacing all these ugly pockets of religious pride, moral superiority, self-righteousness. I'm a pastor. And let's just say I had a radical reorientation in my personal approach with the GLBT community. How did a self-righteous, Bible-banging homophobe go from knocking over straw men to hugging drag queens at a Jersey Pride Festival? How did that happen? Isn't Jesus amazing? He has such a sense of humor. This was, this was part of my coming out party as a friend of the gay community a few years ago. Let's just say Jesus changed my heart from judgment to unconditional love, and he can do the same for all of us. And that's what we're going to talk about next Sunday, our response as Christians to gay brothers and families and friends and the power of Christ. Can he transform our attitude, expand our heart for all of God's children? Is that possible? That's what we're called to as a community of grace and love, following after Jesus, not straw men. So if you've got a gay family member or friend, invite them next week uh, to our conversation. We will get practical. You're going to get blown out of the water, and you will hear how God continues to change an ex-homophobe like me from the inside out. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, what inadequate words those were. (laughs) And so right now I ask for your Holy Spirit to seal over your truth. Thank you, Father, that we are being made new in Jesus Christ. Your Holy Spirit is working, bubbling up through this congregation. You're drawing all men, gay men, straight men, and women to your Son. Father, do whatever you want with us. Start with me. Father, may we be a community that is known for our commitment to truth, but defined by our radical love. Thank you so much for this time, Father. We ask that Jesus would be glorified in our lives this week. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Audio. If this message has touched you, we'd love to know how. Just email Pastor Dave Adamson at churchonline at liquidchurch.com. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com.